Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Um, my guest is uh, Dr. Amoha Bajaj. She goes by Dr. Bajaj. She's part of the, well, she's the clinical and health psychologist at the Manhattan Center for Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. And we're going to talk about, you know, when, when people are depressed, what are some of the cognitive symptoms that they'll exhibit? I guess they're called uh, cognitive distortions. So we'll get into that and a bit of background on Dr. Bajaj and her current work. So welcome, Amoha. Thank you for coming. Thank you, Richard, for having me. It's my pleasure. If you would, tell me a bit about your background and how you came to the clinic you're at, and then we'll talk about your current work. Sure. So I'm a clinical health psychologist, as you mentioned. I earned my bachelor's in psychology, and I was always interested in this marriage between psychology and medicine. So in my college years, I stumbled upon health psychology, which was really studying in research how people act and behave and how that relates to their physical health, even things like how long they live or, you know, risk for diseases. So long story short, that really encouraged me to pursue more research and continue with sort of studying and understanding clinical aspects of how we behave and how that affects our physical health along with our mental health. So I got my PhD and I have a health psychology specialty, which I really enjoy. And I joined Manhattan Center of CBT because that's primarily the approach that I use in my clinical work. It's called cognitive behavioral therapy, and it's a type of therapy that encourages change. And it's a good fit for people who'd like to make changes in their lives. There's an emphasis on behavior. There's an emphasis on thoughts and cognition, like we'll talk about today. And certainly we talk about emotions and you know how they all come together. So that's really the framework that I use. Yeah, just jumping right in. I was thinking about cognitive distortions people have in depression. And I've encountered these directly. That's why I say, you know, uh, like black and white thinking, you know, everyone hates me or, you know, you're probably thinking this and the person not necessarily is. It just, it makes it very hard to talk to someone that, you know, has depression. So, I mean, you're, you're at least initially like a stranger, your patient's. And you're a third party. How do you do CBT or talk therapy with them if they're in the middle of like heavy distortions? You know, their mind is just thinking all these things that are, you know, to the outside observer, irrational. Right, right. That's a really good question. I'm glad you asked that. So first thing, you know, what helps the patient is that they come to you, right? They're coming to the psychologist for help. So they're coming in realizing something's not right about my life in some ways. Either I'm doing something wrong or, you know, externally there's there's some challenging circumstances. So they're actually coming in hoping to change or hoping to get some help. So that's a good start, that their motivation's in the right place. The second thing is once that's in the right place, you know, we do a fair bit of education in cognitive behavioral therapy about one, what CBT is, two, what depression is, technically, and three, what cognitive distortions are. Now, Richard, you're describing that really well. They are thoughts like mind reading, like when we try to predict what others are thinking about us. There are things like black and white thinking, like I'm all bad, 
and the world is all bad. That's a really common thought that people with depression have. And there are others. There's a whole list of cognitive distortions. So much of our work then focuses on education and then helping them identify when those distortions are coming up, either in session and then in real life in between sessions. Once we do that, then we start to look at whether they're true or not. And this is really kind of when you're deep in therapy, we start to evaluate them. Is it actually true that we can predict with 100% accuracy what your coworker was thinking about your job performance that day? You know, most people who are not depressed or not going through it at the time can say, probably not, unless that person directly told me what they thought. So we're able to kind of evaluate those things a little bit more clearly and, and eventually hopefully get to kind of just a place where we're not having as many distortions and are thinking more accurately. That's the other thing I want to mention is CBT and hopefully therapy in general focuses on not necessarily positive thinking all the time. That's not very helpful because it's not always rainbows and butterflies, but we do want to make sure we're thinking logically, rationally, correctly, and that's really the goal. Yeah, well, I wonder if anyone's done a study where you have people come in, maybe one person looks like uh, they're covered in tattoos, you know, they just look like really mean and dangerous. And then, you know, you get a whole bunch of like very different looking people come in and then the person's there to evaluate them. Like, what do you think they're like or what do you think they're thinking? And you have like a cohort of people that are not depressed and a cohort of people that are depressed. It'd be interesting to see what the difference in perception is amongst those two groups, if any. I don't know, just making this stuff up. That's something that came to mind. Right. Yeah. I think a couple of things could come up. Generally, there's actually this theory called Beck's cognitive triad, which is foundational in, in depression work. And it says that people with depression do have negative thoughts about themselves, first of all, negative thoughts about the world, and then negative thoughts about their future as well. And all three kind of feed into each other. So yeah, we could predict that the depressed group might have thoughts perhaps that are negative in nature about this person who differs from them. The other thing, just because you mentioned the tattoos and looking mean, is that there could be social biases as well that could play into that. And so that would be interesting to study. Maybe you should conduct that study. <laughs> yeah, or like, you know, in, in the clinic, I wonder if it'd be useful to have kind of character actors come in, you know, periodically. Again, someone that looks like, let's say, uh, you know, a gangbanger or someone that looks like totally innocent or this, that, or the other, you know, have them come into the room and say like, you know, what do you think about this person? What do you think they, are they mean? Are they this, that, the other? It would just be, it would be interesting. Right. I know, sure, scientifically done, but weird. Right. Yeah, you might expect that even with the control group where there's a perfectly innocent looking person not doing anything suspicious that someone with depression might view them differently than someone or perhaps, I don't maybe negatively or just might be, you know, biased in some way in their perception. What do you do? And, you know, let's say, you know, Bob Smith, and you've done a number of sessions with him, and he comes in today, and he's just really not doing well. He's like mired really deep in these cognitive distortions, and you can tell like he's 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 just really not doing well. What do you do in those cases versus there? It's a good day for the person, right? Yeah, that happens. That happens a lot because you know life can throw a wrench into things. Even when you're in therapy and doing pretty well, there can be a really bad day, and exceptionally so. So if it were me, I would actually put that either on the agenda, which we do set at the top of every CBT session, and or, you know, devote a significant portion of the session to talking about what's going on that's really caused them to, to be so deep in their distortions. And usually when people are describing a situation like I had a really bad day at work, or, you know, my best friend told me off and I couldn't believe that he said all these things. We've been friends for 30 years. And, you know, we want, we want to be able to validate the emotions behind that. You know, if I don't know about you, but if a friend told me, I love a good friend of mine, I'd be pretty hurt by that. And I would want to kind of pay attention to those emotions. So keep in mind, 
when we are feeling emotions intensely, we are more susceptible to cognitive distortions. And that's true for all of us. That's true for depression or no depression. When we're feeling angry, we're more likely to distort reality. When we're feeling even happy, we're more likely to distort reality. So likely what I would do with Bob Smith there is to talk about the emotions that that sort of went behind those situations and then identify the distortions in the moment, because like I mentioned, there are many of them, and then talk about how they seem to really kind of be getting in the way of moving past that situation and feeling better. So kind of bringing him back to change and how can we move forward. Do you ever bring in the um, family members or close associates of the person that you're treating, you know, with their permission? Because I would guess that coming from you, it'll be a lot more accepted versus coming from like, let's say the person's uh, partner or spouse, you know, like your spouse ever tries to teach you anything. Yeah. You're like, bring me out on it. But if someone else teaches it to you, you can take it any easier because it's not that personal, like, right. right. Yeah. But you can be a neutral third party. Um, I would say we'd be open to that as needed. It's a bit case by case. And so in a situation like that, where the patient maybe perhaps could use some support at home and maybe the partner or the family member doesn't know a lot about depression, then yeah, we could absolutely do like an education session with both of them and just be a neutral third party and talk about how to best support the patient. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. What are some of the milestones in, in doing CBT with someone? Like what are some of the first things you look for? And then how do you know that they're quote unquote getting better? Great question. So some things we look for, well, we want to do an intake, which is called just a broad interview when you first come in to understand why the patient's coming in. We would also talk about history. We would talk about psychological history, family history, a little bit about early life and how that informs who they are today and the experiences they've had. We would then talk about treatment goals. That's a pretty big milestone in CBT and pretty unique to CBT, I would say. We spend a fair bit of time talking about treatment goals. And the reason reason for that is since this is a change-oriented therapy, we want to know what are we changing towards? What is our end goal? And I often ask patients if they could fast forward time to six months from now, how would they like life to be different or themselves to be different? How would they like to behave differently? Or if they could wave a magic wand, what would they like to be different? And often people say things like, you know, I'd like to feel less anxious or I'd like to feel more confident. I'd like to have a better handle on my emotions, things like that. And we really narrow them down to eventually then skills that we will then learn in CBT that they can apply. So that's a very collaborative process between the psychologist and the patient to, you know, work together to narrow down goals to skills. And then we start teaching and applying and learning. And there's homework that you do in between sessions. And it ends up usually being a very interesting discovery about how people tend to progress over time. So, so those are some of the goals that patients will tell you is I want to feel less anxious or I don't want to feel sad all the time, those kinds of things? Right. 
Exactly. I don't want to feel sad or I want to feel less anxious. I would like to be more confident. I would like to feel less socially anxious. That comes up pretty often as well. Or sometimes even I'd like to reduce alcohol use or some kind of substance use. Those are some things that come up. What about our concern for self versus others? Do you see that people that are you know, suffering depression, they're kind of all consumed with themselves or are some of them pretty magnanimous and you know, interact a lot with other people and their job, you know, like their their day to day activities are very outward facing instead of inwards. Oh, that's a big question. You mean like if somebody's depressed, they're a little too focused on themselves, that can make it worse. Right. Is there a correlation? Like the people that you see that are depressed, do they tend to be more inward and self focused? Now, I'm not saying selfish, but, but you know what I mean. I'm right. concerned with itself. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I'm not sure about if there's sort of proven correlations out there, but depression can present differently. There's you know a type of patient who could be very kind of involved with their own thoughts. And if they're distorted, then that's not very helpful because then they're usually negative views about themselves and the world and the future as well about the possibility of getting better. And possibly this patient can then isolate and that shows up often in depression and which can then lead to more distorted views about everything. So that's kind of, I think that would be a yes to your question of that present, a depression can present that way in terms of isolation. And there are people who experience depressive symptoms who may be more mild or moderate, but then can still function, can still go to work, can still get things done, can still socialize and kind of fly under the radar. And they're maybe perhaps not as focused on themselves. But, you know, I bet there are studies out there that study this, and I, I'm not sure what the exact conclusion is. I don't think it's very clear, actually. So what are, what are some of the interesting milestones that, again, you see people go through as they get treatment? How do you know, oh, good, they seem to be getting better because X, Y, Z happened? Oh, yes. So some indicators of progress. So let's see, if a person says their mood has been better, you know, for a few weeks in a row, something that we always check at the top of a CBT session is how their mood has been over the previous weeks or week. And what we look for is, has their mood been low? Has it been elevated in a good way? Has it been stable or unstable? And so if someone's consistently reporting stable mood, you know, generally elevated, has some dips, but then they're able to bounce back, then that's a good sign. If they're able to do their homeworks and practice the skills pretty well in between sessions, that's a good sign. Because usually if somebody is really, you know, deep in their clinical symptoms, it can be hard to even apply the skills in between sessions. So skill application is a good sign. If they're able to eventually become more independent, like if somebody can walk me through a situation and say, hey, I was, you know, talking to my boss and I found myself mind reading that he's going to fire me at this meeting. And then I realized I was mind reading. I don't actually know that to be true. In fact, I know the opposite to be true because my performance review last year was great. So they're able to look at the evidence against their distorted thoughts. And then if they come to kind of a rational conclusion of, oh, maybe I was just feeling anxious that led me to think that, but actually I know from experience that I'm doing a good job and, and we get along well. That is like stellar. And that's what you hope to get at the end of a course of treatment. What about people that have bipolar depression or more like treatment resistant forms? How does that manifest and, and what do you do with those people? 
Yeah, so treatment-resistant depression often looks like people who've had depression for many years. It's now called persistent depression in the latest Diagnostic and Statistic Manual, which is the manual for psychological disorders. And they've had depressive symptoms either consistently for many years or on and off for many years. They have been either consistently on medication, antidepressant treatment, or on and off for treatment that is something that we may consider to be treatment resistant, although I would really look at how well they perform when they're in active treatment and whether you know they should continue under that treatment for a longer period of time. In terms of the depression that's part of bipolar, so bipolar is a disorder where you have periods of what's called mania and then what's called depression. Mania are periods of time where people have elevated mood and Symptoms like pressured speech, symptoms like really increased productivity in their work, like all of a sudden they're getting so many things done, uh, decreased need for sleep, they're not sleeping as much, but it's almost self-destructive. It's almost reckless. They might be making reckless decisions, gambling a lot, spending money recklessly, driving recklessly. That is what mania tends to look like, followed by periods of mild or moderate depression where mood is really consistently low and there's less energy, there's perhaps greater sleep more than usual, and they're, ha they're having trouble functioning. And so that's kind of what depression in my bipolar disorder looks like. But how does that, does it make it impossible or just difficult for you to help them with CBT? Good question. So this is a big case by case, and I'm happy to walk you through both cases. So with bipolar disorder, um, we'd want to consider periods of manic episodes as well. So it would be hard to treat just the depression because we know there's likely a manic episode coming. So there, we definitely want them to be on some kind of mood stabilizer medication. So we would work with psychiatry to make sure they're on an appropriate medication to help decrease the intensity of the manic episodes as well as the depressive episodes. So that would be one course of treatment. The second with bipolar disorder is really kind of having regular routines and schedules is highly recommended. It's under the umbrella of something called social rhythms therapy. therapy. And basically it means things that regulate our circadian rhythm like sunlight and regular meals and socializing and staying away from substances tends to regulate our mood and neurotransmitters as well. So that would be something that might be recommended for somebody struggling with bipolar disorder. And then of course, I think CBT would be helpful in terms of identifying not just cognitive distortions, but also behaviors that we know are not going to help us very much. So for example, if somebody skipped their medication dose and drank a lot, that's likely going to set them up for some kind of episode following that night, perhaps. So identifying behaviors that can make those symptoms worse. Um, with treatment-resistant depression, we would want to consider what the need of the hour is at that time for that particular patient. So for example, if they come in with a long history of depression and they're currently not under, you know, not taking any antidepressants and they're induced endorsing some suicidal risk, we would definitely want to make sure that they're in a good level of care where there's emergency services, that there is psychiatry available, that there is a medication available if they choose to go down that route. Once they're more stable with their sort of risk, and, and their symptoms, then we would consider a course of CBT that can help us identify what led to that episode of depression, kind of the antecedents of it. What are the symptoms? Again, what are the goals? Where are they trying to go from there? And then help them get there. Hmm. Okay. For someone that is depressed, maybe bipolar, maybe not, how do you help them deal with expected upcoming stresses? And how do you help them deal with unexpected stresses that hit them out of nowhere? Yeah. And this is part of life, right? We can be caught off guard in an unexpected way. And even stressors are bound to happen. 
you know, when you have a big deadline coming up or if you're a student, a big exam coming up. A um, couple of things, you know, one, from a behavioral perspective, we want to make sure that we're taking care of ourselves behaviorally, meaning we want to make sure we're sleeping well. We want to make sure that we are eating well. We want to make sure we're getting some exercise, sunlight exposure. Those are some basic self-care activities. The next thing is if it's a planned stressor that's coming, you know, I I think I would actually even go to some emotion management skills under the umbrella of emotion regulation, which means really kind of understanding the emotions that are bound to come up in a stressful situation and helping them tolerate those emotions, which is part of life, without engaging in behaviors that might hurt them long term. So for example, if a student is, you know, undergoing CBT for depression and they're actually doing pretty well, they're pretty stable, but they have this dreaded final exam coming up and it's a make or break grade and it's the end of the semester, it's a big deal. So we want to make sure along the way that they're studying well, staying on top of things, we would look out for cognitive distortions that might get in the way of not studying, like, you know, fortune telling, predicting the future, or any kind of negative interpretation of things. And then once that exam comes and it's approaching, we'd want them to identify the emotions, like it's normal to feel stressed, it's normal to feel nervous, it's normal to feel self-doubt. It's normal to feel unsure of yourself about how you're going to do. And this third, I guess, step would be to validate all of those things. That it's really okay and it's really normal for everyone to feel those emotions when they're under a stressful circumstance. And the last step would be to help them tolerate those emotions and still do the behaviors that help them like show up to the exam, show up on time, do your best to do well, and that's about it. And not do the behaviors that are going to hurt them like not show up to the exam because they're too nervous. Or, you know, perhaps if they're having trouble with attention and concentration, teaching some techniques to kind of stay in the present and focus on one question at a time. And Richard, for your other part of the, your question about unpredicted events, I would borrow the middle part of that strategy around managing emotions, labeling what we're feeling and validating that it can be shocking to, for example, lose a loved one. It can be, you know, tragic at times, given, you know, depending on how they passed, how sudden and in what way. So really yeah. kind of identifying what they're feeling, normalizing it and validating, especially in the case of unexpected events. Okay. I mean, do people with depression have a lot more difficulty with expected stresses or unexpected stresses, or there's really no difference? It's just a matter of here's the skills, how we apply and here's how you apply them. Right. Yeah, I would think if we even think about people who are not depressed, you know, we tend to have difficulty in different ways with both, with unexpected events as well as expected. And so someone with depression, you might guess, will also struggle with both in different ways. Now, they have the added challenge that they're really not feeling well, right? If you think about someone who's medically ill, for example, someone going through cancer treatment, having to even go around the block can be really hard. And so daily challenges can be extra challenging for someone who, especially in the middle of their depressive symptoms, if they're having a hard time eating because they have low appetite, if they're having a hard time getting out of bed, if they're constantly having distortions that they haven't yet learned how to deal with, that even expected events, let alone unexpected events, could be really challenging. I think there is, you know, there's something to be said for where you are in treatment. So someone who has mild depressive symptoms and who has really spent a lot of time in therapy, learned the skills, is pretty good at applying them, they're probably better equipped at handling both unexpected and expected challenges. Okay. And are there any, well, I'm sure there are, but is there any type of depression or cognitive distortion that uh, CBT has a hard time solving? You know, I know that 
medications go along with it at the appropriate times, et cetera. But is there anything really like outside the purview of CBT that people think mistakenly can help with? That CBT cannot help with, you said? Right, right. Like what are the limits of it that you've seen? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think you had alluded to this in the beginning about milestones that we address when we start CBT. Well, one of them would be really the fit of a patient for CBT. I think CBT works best for someone who has identifiable treatment goals and is looking to make changes. Sometimes people are not looking to make changes and that's okay. So for example, you know, if someone's just lost a loved one and they're really just looking for support as they go through that transition and they're not really looking to make any big changes in life, then that person may not be a good for CBT. They may want to look for other forms of therapy that could be helpful to them during that transition. So that might be one thing to consider when we think about fit for CBT. But in, among people who want to make changes, you know, I can't think of any exceptions. I do kind of look out for this in my own work, what CBT cannot help with. And there aren't a lot of things, I would say, as long as we can boil it down to changes we want to make and there are plenty of kind of teaching methods and skills, then I think we can get there. We can really help people feel better. Okay. Well, excellent. Well, Dr. Bajaj, I know you can't help everybody, but what is your radius of coverage? Like, can you do out of state or is it just one particular state? Like, where can... Where can people come from where they can get help from you? And if not, what are some resources for them to get help? Sure. Thank you for asking. So I currently see patients in New York and New Jersey. That's where I'm licensed, and I will be expanding that in the near future. So please stay tuned. I'm going to be covering a big area of the country in the near future. In terms of looking for a provider, there are some good sources. One of them is, it's a well-known source. It's called psychologytoday.com. It allows you to search by your insurance, search by even your preference if you're okay to go out of network with your insurance, allow you to search by your zip code, and you can read about different providers to see who's a good fit for you. There's CBT and non-CBT providers as well. So that would be a good starting point. I think Google is a great way. I think word of mouth is probably best. We get a lot of patients in our practice through word of mouth, and it's usually because someone's got a good experience that they'd love to share with a friend. And, and, and that's ultimately our goal as well, is to help people feel better so that they can spread the word. And you know, I really hope that one of the takeaways that I hope people take from this is that therapy can can be quite approachable. It's really only a phone call and email away. And that can be a hard thing to pull the trigger on, but it can be that simple as well. So it can be approachable. It can be helpful. You know, often I think there's a myth that it's not going to lead to any change. It's not going to do anything. We're going to just talk about things forever. Not necessarily. In fact, not likely. Though often therapy does lead to change. And relatively quickly, I would say as well, especially something like CBT, people tend to feel better within a few weeks to maybe six months or so. I hope people kind of take that message a little more optimistically. Well, excellent. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Bajaj, for coming on the call and, you know, fielding all my questions. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Richard. Thank you for having me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.